Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. And this is a bonus episode filling in the space between season seven and season eight. As always, this episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. We have four seasons so far, beginning with the struggle between Ibn Zubair and then on to the Umayyad Caliphate. We have two seasons of the Umayyad Caliphate, in fact. And we also have a series on the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. So if you need to hear more Islamic history than what you're getting here at Islamic History Podcast, consider joining Islamic History Exclusive. To join, go to Apple Podcasts or your Spotify app and search for Islamic History Exclusive. You can also join by visiting patreon.com slash Islamic History or at islamichistoryexclusive.com. This episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast discussing the life of Allah's last messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and it is available on all platforms. All right, this is the first episode in a hopefully two-part series on Malik Ambar. So let's begin by asking the question, who was Malik Ambar? He was an Abyssinian general of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate in the Indian Deccan. We are going to explain what the Ahmadnagar Sultanate was, and we also are going to explain what the Deccan area of India was, or is, I should say. It's all coming up. Malik Ambar was famous for his military successes and his administrative competency. He was not the ruler of Ahmadnagar. He was not the sultan of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, but he was the effective ruler of the Sultanate because he controlled the actual puppets on the throne. We'll get to all that, inshallah. Before we can talk about Malik Anbar and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, we must speak about its predecessor, the Bahmani Sultanate. The Bahmani Sultanate was an Islamic kingdom based in the Deccan, and the Deccan is a region in south-central western India, sort of. Much of the Deccan, much of this region is within the modern Indian state of Maharashtra, where Mumbai is the capital of this modern state. So if you go onto Google Maps or onto any sort of map, you can see where this region would have been located. Various Muslim kingdoms have ruled this region over time, and most of our story will take place in this region known as the Deccan. The Bahmani Sultanate was founded by Alauddin Hassan Bahman Shah in 1347. This was the first independent Islamic kingdom in South India, and the Bahmani Sultans claimed to be descended from an ancient Persian king named Kai Bahman. The Bahmani Sultanate, however, began to decline around 1436 when the Sultan, whose name was Humayun, was killed by his own slaves. Humayun was succeeded by his eight-year-old son, who died two years later, and following that, there was a series of sultans, most of whom were weak, eventually leading to the breakup of the Bahmani Sultanate. And the Bahmani Sultanate broke up into five separate kingdoms. The Barar Sultanate, the Bijapur Sultanate, the Golconda Sultanate, 
the Bidar Sultanate, and finally, the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, which is the one we'll be talking about the most today. So let's discuss the founding of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate that came from the breakup of the Bahmani Sultanate. The Ahmadnagar Sultanate was founded by a man named Malik Ahmad Nizam Shah around 1490. Malik Ahmed Nizam Shah was the son of the Prime Minister of the Bahmani Sultanate. His father, the Prime Minister, appointed him, Malik Ahmed Nizam Shah, as the governor of the northwestern region of the Bahmani Sultanate. But as the Bahmani Sultanate began to fall apart, Malik Ahmed Nizam Shah was able to secede from the Bahmani Sultanate and establish the region as an independent state. He also established the city of Ahmad Nagar, which means the city of Ahmed. Now this founder, this new sultan, Malik Ahmed Nizam Shah, was originally a Sunni Muslim, but eventually converted to Shiaism. This allowed him to build closer ties with the Safavids in Persia. In this dynasty that ruled over Ahmad Nagar, that was founded by Malik Ahmed Nizam Shah, is generally known as the Nizam Shah dynasty. And that is a phrase you will hear frequently as we go through our story. So this new sultanate, the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate, was constantly at war throughout most of its history. It was constantly at war with its neighbors. It also went to war with the Vijayanagar Empire, which was a Hindu empire covering the southern tip of the Indian Peninsula. And, as we will soon see, it was at war with the expanding Mughal Empire. Now we're going to discuss the Mughals in much more depth in the upcoming season of the Islamic History Podcast. But we'll give you a brief overview right now, inshallah, just so you can understand what's going on with this story. The Mughal Empire was founded by Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur in 1526. He claimed to be a descendant of Timur the Lame or Tamerlane, whom, by the way, we briefly discussed in Season 7 of the Islamic History Podcast when the growing Ottoman Empire came into conflict with the growing Timur Empire. Timur himself, though he was Muslim, he was quite brutal, and he claimed to be a descendant of Genghis Khan. So, based on this connection to Timur and this connection to the Mongols, the empire that Zahiruddin Muhammad Babur founded was later called the Mughals. And the word Mughal is the Arabic and Persian word for Mongol. The Mughals will go on to conquer much of India, and honestly, they wanted to conquer the entire Indian subcontinent, and their and their expansionist ways, for lack of a better phrase, helped to facilitate the spread of Islam in India. But this also meant that the Mughals spent a lot of time fighting the Deccan Sultanates, which included the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate. Malik Ambar is famous because he led the Ahmad Nagar resistance against 
the Mughal expansion. So now let's finally talk about Malik Ambar himself. Let's begin with his early life. His original name was actually Chapu. He was born in 1548 in the Kambata region of southern Ethiopia. Yes, Malik Ambar was actually African. This region where he was born was part of the Adal Sultanate, which was a Sunni Muslim kingdom in the Horn of Africa that lasted for a little bit over 160 years. Malik Ambar was likely, well, I guess his name was Chapu at the time. This young boy Chapu was likely from the Oromo ethnic group, and the Oromos are the largest ethnic group in the modern state of Ethiopia. Most Oromos are Muslim now, but interesting fact, before Islam, they worshipped a deity called Wak. Now. If you have been a long-time listener or even a short-time listener of this podcast, you should know, if you don't know, you should know that we discussed WAC at least once, maybe even twice, in this podcast. We discussed it with our brother, Muhammad Aratan, when we discussed Somalia and Islam. So if you want to know more about this pre-Islamic religion that the people of East Northeast Africa, the Horn of Africa practice before Islam, which, by the way, was a monotheistic religion. It was monotheism in a way. I strongly suggest go back and listen to those episodes. All right. Continuing on with the life of Malik Ambar. At some point of time, Malik Ambar or Chapu, which was his name at the time, Chapu was sold into slavery, most likely as a young child. He was sold into slavery, taken across the Red Sea from the Horn of Africa, and then resold to another dealer in Yemen, reportedly for 80 Dutch guilders. A guilder was a currency used in the Netherlands until the euro replaced it, I think, in 1999 or 2000, something like that. From Yemen, Chapu was then taken to Baghdad in modern-day Iraq and sold to another merchant named Mir Qasim. Mir Qasim recognized this young boy Chapu's intelligence and he began to educate him, he converted him to Islam, and then he gave him the name Anbar. At some point in time in the early 1570s, Anbar was then sent to the Deccan, which is in India, where he was sold to a new master. This new master was named Chinggis Khan, and Chinggis Khan was himself a former East African slave. Chinggis Khan was currently the Peshwa, or Prime Minister, of the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate. Now, Malik Anbar and Chinggis Khan were not the only Africans in India at this time. You might find this surprising, I definitely found it surprising as I did my research on these Africans in India. Now, today, there are hundreds of thousands of people of African descent living in the subcontinent. Now, it seems that they are under a couple of different names. I found a word called Shidi or Makrani. Most of these African Indians are Muslim. Most of them also live in Pakistan particularly near Karachi and in Sindh and in the Balochistan provinces. The Shidi are a division of the Sidi people of India. 
And the Siddhis are of African descent and they came to India in a variety of ways over the centuries. Many of them came as slaves like Malik Ambar, but not all of them. Others came as merchants. Some came as mercenaries or soldiers of fortune or soldiers for hire, however you want to call it. In fact, some of the earliest Africans in India came with Muhammad ibn Qasim in 712 CE. Muhammad ibn Qasim was the Umayyad general who conquered Sindh in Pakistan during the time of Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. We discussed the Umayyad conquest of Sindh in detail in Islamic History Exclusive, our premium podcast. I strongly suggest that you go and listen to that episode, subscribe, listen to that episode, and learn how Islam came to the Indian subcontinent. Now, the word Shidi or Siddhi, which is what these African Indians are called, it is believed to have come from the Arabic word for Sayyid. And Sayyid is an honorary title meaning master or sir. You might have recognized the phrase Sayyiduna Muhammad, meaning our master Muhammad, speaking of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But for some reason in today's world, the word Shidi or Sidi is now synonymous with hoodlum. I don't quite understand that, and I haven't really looked into the reason why that is the case, but that does appear to be the case now. I'll have to discuss it with uh, some of my Pakistani friends to explain why this might be. But that's a story for another day. The Deccan Sultanates, these various sultanates in the Deccan region of the Indian subcontinent, they preferred Abyssinian slaves as they were supposed to be good workers and very loyal. There is a lot of misconceptions conflating Western slavery with Islamic slavery. As I, I don't want to get too deep into it because we have discussed slavery in depth over the past month or so, so you can always go back to those earlier episodes. Just want to make one thing clear. The slave trade, whether it was done by Christians, Muslims, Jews, or anybody else, is generally brutal and hard and difficult and deadly and terrible. There is no way to turn people into slaves without there being some sort of brutality involved. However, while the slave trade, the process of capturing people and forcing them into slavery is always brutal, definitely the treatment of slaves in the Muslim world was far better than the treatment of slaves in the Western world. And I don't mean by degrees, by a little bit here and there. It was immensely better. It doesn't mean the same thing when we say that slaves in this part of the Muslim world were more loyal to their masters than slaves in other parts of the world, even some parts of the Muslim world. But again, that is a story for another day. Many of these Africans rose to prominent positions within these Muslim sultanates of India. They became generals, admirals, bureaucrats, nobles, prime ministers, government officials, However, they started to lose their high status when, no surprise here, the British began taking over the Indian subcontinent. In fact, a Shidi named Hosh Mohammed Shidi, an African Indian general, he was a general for the Talpur dynasty of Sindh 
and he led the fight against the British invasion and conquest and colonization of Sindh. Back to Malik Ambar. So now Malik Ambar is in the Deccan. His new master is a government official. He's a prime minister. And he begins to teach him affairs of state and diplomacy. So five years later, Chinggis Khan is accused of treason and executed. And this might have been politically motivated. He might have been falsely or wrongly accused. There were many people in the sultan's court who were jealous of Chinggis Khan's increasing influence and his power. Now, there was also a practice during this period of time that when their masters died, the Abyssinian slaves in the Deccan automatically gained their freedom. This is in stark contrast, very different from the way slavery worked in the United States. When a, a slave master died in the United States, the slaves would generally pass on to that man's or woman's descendants. This caused a lot of frustration in slave families in the South at this time because a, a, ma a slave master might be based in Alabama, but he could have children in Texas. And he dies, his son in Texas inherits part of his slaves, but not all of the slaves. And so you now have parents and children separated by three or four states in the time where the fastest form of travel is the railroad. So you have that problem. That was not the issue here in the Deccan. When a man died, his slaves automatically became free. So when Chinggis Khan was executed, Ambar became a free man. Anbar then moved to the nearby Bijapur Sultanate, another one of those sultanates that came from the breakup of the Bahmani Sultanate. And Anbar worked in the Bijapur Sultanate as a mercenary for the next 20 years. During this period, he met an Abyssinian woman named Karima, and they eventually got married. Anbar was put in charge of a small military troop and he was given the title of Malik and that's how he got his name Malik Ambar. Now in the Bijapur Sultanate as in the Ahmadnagar Sultanate the Habashis or these Abyssinians these African Indians they held immense power within these sultanates a lot of political power as we mentioned there were generals and admirals and all sorts of things. So during the period of time that Malik Ambar was working in Bijapur as a mercenary, the Sultan of Ahmadnagar was a man named Ismail Shah. However, his prime minister was a Habashi, an African named Jamal Khan. He was the real power behind the throne. Whereas in Bijapur, where uh, Malik Ambar was, the leader of the Habashis was a man named Ikhlas Khan, and Ikhlas Khan had installed a puppet king as sultan in 1595, and Ikhlas Khan, this Abyssinian, this Habashi, this African, he was the guy really running the show. Towards the end of the 16th century, around the 1590s, the Ahmadnagar Sultanate began to experience a lot of turmoil. The Habashi, the Abyssinian, Jamal Khan, who was the prime minister, the guy who really ran the show, who controlled the puppet sultans, he was killed in battle in 1591. After they lost that battle, the sultan Ismail Shah, who was a puppet, 
He was arrested and killed by his father, a man named Burhan Shah, and he took over. Burhan Shah took over the Ahmadagar Sultanate. Soon after that, however, Burhan Shah was defeated by his sister, a woman named Chand Bibi. And Chand Bibi, by the way, I had to do a little bit of research on her just in preparing for this episode. She was a very dynamic woman. I think she deserves a couple of episodes of, of her own. Very interesting woman at this period of time in the Deccan region. Anyway, Chan Bibi placed her great-nephew, Bahadur Shah, on the throne of the Ahmadagar Sultanate, but Bahadur was only a baby, and with Jamal Khan gone, and Ismail Shah gone, and Borhan Shah gone, Chan Bibi essentially ruled the Ahmadagar Sultanate as vice-regent. Around 1595, when all this turmoil was going on in Ahmadnagar, Malik Ambar left Bijapur and returned to Ahmadnagar. This was around the time that Ikhlas Khan, the Habashi, and Bijapur Sultanate, the neighboring Sultanate, had installed a puppet king in Bijapur. Now, we're not certain if these two events are related, if Ikhlas Khan installing a puppet king in Bijapur forced Ahmadnagar to leave Bijapur and return to Ahmadnagar. We're not certain. Or perhaps he moved back to Ahmadnagar because he recognized all the turmoil with um, Jamal Khan gone and having been killed in battle. Maybe Malik Ambar saw an opportunity for himself. Maybe he could take his place as the prime minister in Ahmadnagar. We're not sure. But whatever the case, in 1595, Malik Ambar returned to Ahmad Nagar. With all of this confusion and chaos going on, the Mughal Empire saw an opportunity to invade the Ahmad Nagar Sultanate. At this period of time, the Mughal Empire was led by none other than Akbar the Great, who was perhaps, most probably, the greatest Mughal emperor ever. He saw an opportunity and he took it. However, the first, the initial Mughal forays into the Ahmadnagar Sultanate were repulsed by Chand Bibi, the woman who was behind the throne of the child sultan of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. However, when she died in 1599, the Mughals were able to take advantage of this and they finally conquered most of Ahmadnagar. Malik Anbar and the other officials of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate, they did not want to stop fighting. They decided to continue the resistance against the Mughals, but they would have to fight from the parts of the Sultanate that had not yet been conquered by the Mughals. Malik Anbar refused to recognize the Mughals, Akbar the Great, as his suzerain, as his master. He refused to submit to them. Instead, he promoted a young man from the Nizam Shah dynasty, a young man named Murtaza as the new ruler. Though, in fact, Murtaza would actually be a puppet ruler with Malik Anbar as the regent, as the spokesman, as the prime minister, and so effectively as the ruler. Malik Ambar also declared a city called Paranda in the central Deccan region as the new Ahmadnagar capital. The capital would wind up moving a couple of times after that. It would then move on to another city called Jinnar and finally to Kadki in western Deccan. To solidify his connections to the Nizam Shah dynasty, 
Malik Ambar had one of his daughters marry a member of the Nizam Shah dynasty, which is the royal family ruling the Ahmednagar Sultanate, or what was left of it after the Mughals took over most of it. This was, of course, a political move on Malik Ambar's part. Around this same time, there was another member of the Nizam Shah clan who was also resisting the Mughals. This was a man named Raju Dekani, who was based in the northern part of the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. Whereas Malik Ambar was closer to Telangana, which is in central India, the central Deccan region, Raju Dekani was in the northern part of the Deccan region. Raju Dekani declared his allegiance to the puppet ruler Murtaza Nizam Shah, and he began to resist and fight the Mughals as well. These two men, however, Malik Ambar in the central Deccan and Raju Dakani in northern Deccan, though they had a common enemy, they were actually rivals and there was a level of mistrust between them. However, they put their differences aside in order to focus on resisting the Mughals, and they eventually agreed to divide the Sultanate up between them once the Mughal threat was over. Now let's discuss the military preparations for this fight between the Mughals and the Ahmadnagar Sultanate. The Mughals divided their military up into two segments, one to deal with Malik Ambar, the other to deal with Raju Dakani. The military contingent assigned to fight Malik Ambar was led by a general, a Mughal general named Abdurrahim Kani Kanan. Kani Kanan operated out of the Ahmadagar fortress that the Mughals had captured when they took over most of the Sultanate. The other contingent that was going to fight Raju Dakani in the north was led by a Mughal general named Abul Fadl. Malik Ambar, in his preparation to fight the Mughals, he initiated several military reforms that vastly improved the Ahmadagar or the Nizam Shah military. He drafted a very large army consisting of tens of thousands of soldiers, which included 60,000 cavalry, 10,000 Habashis or East Africans, 40,000 Deccanis. These are people from the Deccan region of India. He also, this is interesting here, he also utilized Maratha Hindu fighters from Western Deccan. Now, these guys turned out to be a very effective guerrilla force in the fight against the Mughals. However, this would later come back to haunt the Muslims of India because these Hindu fighters would gain a lot of experience from this struggle against the Mughals. And they would eventually establish their own empire called the Maratha Empire. And this Hindu state would play a huge role in decreasing Mughal influence and power in India. But again, that is a story for another day. Malik Ambar also enlisted the support of other cities, that is African Indians, located on an island called Janjira. The Janjira Island was just off the western coast of India. The Africans, the East Africans, had controlled this island for hundreds of years 
And naturally, being on an island, they were very good sea navigators, and Malik used their naval expertise in the fight against the Mughals. The Mughals, however, were having a difficult time of it all. They had a difficult time coordinating their forces in the Deccan, fighting against uh, Raju Dekani in the north and Malik Ambar in the center. It seems as if the two Mughal generals, Abul Fadl and Kani Kanan, just didn't really coordinate their attacks. And so when the Mughals were fighting uh, Raju Dakani in the north, this allowed Malik Ambar to fortify his position and be better prepared when they came to fight him in the center. Malik Ambar finally did confront the Mughal forces, and when he confronted them, he beat them almost every single time. Malik Ambar was eventually defeated in 1601, this time by a man named Abdurrahman. This Mughal commander named Abdurrahman was actually the son of Abu Fadl, who was leading the fight against Raju Dakan. This battle in 1601 took place at Nanded, which is in central Deccan on the banks of the Godavari River. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And this Godavari River flows through the Maharashtra state in India. Malik Ambar was defeated and he was forced to sue for peace, which put him in a weakened position. The basic terms of this agreement between Malik Ambar and the Mughals were that Malik Ambar would retain control of Ausa, Darur, and parts of Bir, and all of these territories are located in the southeast section of the Maharashtra state. If you're not sure where this is, go on a map, look up India, look at the Maharashtra state, and you can get a general idea of where these locations are. In return for control of these regions, Malik Ambar had to accept a quote-unquote treaty of service, which basically made him into a Mughal vassal. He also had to release several Mughal POWs that had been taken during the early fighting between the two powers. So right now, it looks like this might be the end of Malik Ambar's legacy, but actually, it is just the beginning. Inshallah, we will continue discussing the life of Malik Ambar because he is not done fighting the Mughals. We're going to continue this discussion in the next episode, inshallah. But until then, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.